0: Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. And as you open your Bibles there, we are now going to enter into another significant developing point in Luke's narrative. As you recall, we we studied through the first nine chapters where Luke, after giving the birth accounts of John the Baptist and Jesus, goes on to establish the identity of the Messiah. And chapter 9 comes to a close with first Jesus asking the apostles, who do you say that I am? And they pass the test. You are the Christ of God. And then the Father Himself on the mountain gives verbal testimony. This is My Son, My Chosen. Listen to Him. And coming down from the mountain, the narrative takes a turn as Jesus resolutely sets His face to go to Jerusalem. And after what He said in chapter 9, He's going to Jerusalem to die. He knows it. He's told His disciples, the reader, we know it. And so Luke, through that testimony of Jesus, His Father, His disciples, through the testimony of the miracles which are prominent in the first nine chapters, Luke has established the identity of the Messiah. And now, we join Jesus on the journey to Jerusalem. It's the largest section of the book going from chapter 10 all the way through 19. And as Jesus journeys now, the opposition is going to begin. That's what's going to be introduced here. We've seen groups of opposition. The scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers. But now, starting in our text this morning, the crowds themselves are going to begin to turn on Jesus. and, And Jesus is going to focus more and more of His teaching on His disciples. In fact, in this section that we're in now, the journey to Jerusalem, Miracles take a back seat. As we'll see, even in our text today, the miracle is largely an aside to get to the controversy that takes place afterwards. Now, we're only going to look at verses 14-20 to 20 today, but I'd like to read through verse 36 because this whole section is really a unit, as you'll see. Jesus will perform a miracle, and then some of the people in the crowd say He does it by the power of Satan. others, are seeking a sign, and Jesus will answer those concerns in the order they're given. And this morning we'll look at the answer, Jesus' refutation, the accusation that he is satanically empowered. And it'll actually take up two weeks, and then our own Greg Rolak will deal with the sign of Jonah, verses twenty-nine through thirty-two, as Jesus responds to the desire for signs. And then there's a final call. Of response and self examination in verses 33 through 36. After that, he goes to a dinner party. So, this is all one unit we're going to look at in four weeks, but I'd like to read the whole unit to begin with. So, Luke chapter 11, <clears throat> starting in verse 14. Now, he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid to waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Elzebel, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When an unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they will enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse And the first, as he was saying these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. I'll just be looking at verses 14 to 20, but there is the entire encounter and response. as Jesus deals with, identifies, recognizes this new turn in the crowd. Strangely and sadly, the crowds are still growing. Sometimes people just want to show up for a controversy. And crowds generate crowds. And In fact, look at chapter 12, how it begins. In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another. And yet Jesus looks over this crowd, and as we'll hear from from our own Greg Rolak in a few weeks, this is an evil generation. Not to say there weren't exceptions, but by and large, that's Jesus' summary judgment on the crowds that are gathering around Him. If you want to know how on earth could the Jews rise up and call for the death of their Messiah, it begins here at the popular level in Luke. We've seen segments of it in the, the religious elite. but now for the first time, it's introduced. We're going to look at the kingdom of God or Satan. Or the kingdom of Satan and God. Who is Jesus? Luke has established for us the reader the issue of his identity. But now, Jesus' identity in the public sense comes, comes to the forefront. And it's decision time. It is decision time. He's in the last six months leading up to the cross. He's had two and a half years or more of ministry. Luke has recorded all of the public miracles that he's done. And now the crowds are coming to their conclusion. And sadly, the vast majority of them are coming to a conclusion not of faith. Not of faith. So let's look at this in two parts the healing and the controversy, and Jesus refutes his accusers. I said earlier that the the miracle here is almost incidental. In in the previous narratives prior to the shift in Luke, we'd get extensive descriptions of miracles with just cursory notes of response. You'd read something like the people marveled or they praised God. Here, just notice the way Luke is telling this in, in chapter 11, verse 14. Now, he was casting out a demon that was mute when the demon had gone out The mute man spoke. The people marveled. But some of them said, and we move right on to the controversy, the the miracle that that Luke cites is primarily there to give a context for this controversy. But let's not skip over the miracle itself. Jesus has been exercising power and authority over the kingdom of Satan throughout Luke's Gospel. Probably most um, vividly with with the demoniac who had over a thousand demons in him. Had a legion in him. And This demoniac fell at Jesus' feet, begging Him. An an absolute, total display of power. There's no tug of war. There was no fight. A legion, an army of demons inhabiting a man just surrenders, runs up to surrender to Jesus. That's the type of authority and power He has over the denizens of hell. And so here, He was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. I want you to notice here that in this work, Jesus is continuing, and here's your blank, to do the works of the Messiah. He is continuing to do the works of the Messiah. If you turn back to chapter 4, with me in Luke's Gospel, when Jesus first enters public ministry in Luke's narrative, He is in His hometown in Nazareth. He's in the synagogue on a Sabbath. They open the scroll of Isaiah. They give it to Him and He reads. And in verse 18 to 19, Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. And that word for anointed is just the English translation of the Hebrew messiah or messiah, which in Greek is Christ or Christos. The Lord has anointed me to do two things, right? To proclaim, this is an anointing of proclamation, good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, and not only to proclaim, but to actually set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So Jesus says, I am He. He says, here in your hearing, this is fulfilled. I am the one who the Lord has commissioned to proclaim a message of salvation and deliverance and to accomplish that deliverance. And that's what Jesus is on His way to do. And so these... Miracles of freeing and releasing and healing are the very things that that identify him as the Messiah. Turn to to chapter 7. If you remember, when John the Baptist is in prison and he begins to be confused, this isn't the type of Messiah he was expecting, this isn't the way he thought the story was going to end. And he sends some of his disciples to Jesus. How does Jesus respond? In verses 22-23, to He answered them, Go tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. The poor have good news preached to them. Blessed is the one who is not offended by Me. So Jesus again points to those miracles. And he says, they they identify me for who I am. He doesn't explain it to John. He doesn't explain how there's going to be a a cross before the crown, that there's going to be a humility before exaltation. He just says, no, John, you didn't mistake me. I am indeed the Messiah. So this is another one of those miracles that is meant to attest to his identity. That's what the miracles fundamentally were for. We're told at times Jesus' miracles purely out of compassion. But Jesus did not heal everybody on planet Earth. He didn't even heal everybody in Israel and Judea. Primarily, the miracles attested to His identity. And here is another powerful demonstration of authority. There's, there's again, no tug of war, no conflict. It's just He speaks, the demons obey. He cast out the demon that was mute and the demon had gone out. The man spoke. This man who was unable to speak is now joining in, presumably praise to God. And the people... Marveled. And again, that's not a new occurrence either. In fact, this marveling has been going on through the book. It started back when when Zechariah was struck mute because he, incidentally, requested a sign. Remember when the angel told him, What will be the sign? The sign, Zechariah, is going to be that you aren't going to be able to speak. (laughs) That's your sign. Or when the angels appeared to the shepherds, people marveled, Luke records. In fact, even back in chapter 4, we just looked at as Jesus. Read the scroll of Isaiah and sat down. The people marveled at the gracious words coming out of his lips. In John chapter 8, as Jesus calmed the storm, they marveled. But probably most notably, in a similar context, back in chapter 9, if you remember in chapter 9, Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration. There's a demon possessed boy that the disciples were unable to, to uh, exercise. And Jesus cast the demon out in 9.43 while they were all marveling at everything that He was doing. That's a common occurrence. And One of the things Luke's Gospel makes clear is that Jesus' miracles were powerful. They were evident. The people who saw them were marveled. They weren't thinking, well, maybe He did that with smoke and mirrors. I, I only say that the contrast today's proponents of miraculous powers, if they had them, there'd be no debate. No one is debating whether Jesus has power. In fact, that's the reason why they have to go to the tact that He's satanically empowered. Because there's not the slightest hope of saying, no, He really doesn't do mighty works. It, it's, it's, it's known by everyone. In fact, one of the reasons why the four, all four Gospels, the only miracle that all four Gospels contain, aside from the resurrection, is the feeding of the 5,000. And I was talking to Pastor Daniel this week about that, and he mentioned that one of the reasons why he thinks that all four Gospels contain that is because that was the miracle that had the most audience, the most spread of verification. And for anyone reading these manuscripts in the first instance, what they could most likely verify by living witnesses. I mean, just think of how the word would spread with 5,000 men and their families telling what happened. This, this man just, it just kept multiplying and it kept multiplying and it kept multiplying. And we, we all ate our fill and there was food left over. Jesus is doing the works of the Messiah. Luke's been showing them to us. and We've seen them. The crowd has heard them. And and that's important to Mark because part of what Jesus' response to both of these two um, responses from the crowd is going to be, you've seen enough, in short. I've I've demonstrated my credentials. You've seen enough, and you're you're culpable. You're responsible. You ought to know who I am. In fact, I think He says, you do know who I am. But we'll, we'll get to that. So Jesus does the works of the Messiah and the crowd marvels. But Luke really draws our attention here. As I said, the, the, the exorcism is incidental to what Luke wants to highlight, which is this Controversy. Now Jesus, think about this, has has done nothing but serve these people. Nothing but give His time to these people. He was trying to get away in a desolate place, and the crowd found Him, and He welcomed them. He he healed all of their sick in Capernaum, and they came to Him at sundown. Again and again and again, He's done nothing but serve and do good. He's preached the truth to them. He's he's spoken truly. He's received sinners. You think of the the sinful woman who came and, and wiped His with her hair he has done nothing but serve and love and bless these people and yet amazingly you read but some of them said he casts out demons by beelzebul the prince of demons while others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven two different responses from the crowd we're primarily going to focus on the first response in Jesus' answer to the first response this week. But let's just look at that first one. Jesus, um, Some attributed His power to Satan. Now, that word for Baelzebel is a word that first shows up in 1 Kings 1-2 where He's named as a god of Ekron. But it appears as though the Jews took this title Lord of the Flies, or Lord of Dung, as the two are so closely associated, and used it as a preferred insulting title for, for the demonic forces. And by this time, it seems to be the Lord. Jesus, as you'll see in this text, uses it interchangeably with Satan. Basically, they're calling Him empowered by Satan, but choosing the rudest, most derogatory title for that they can. You're empowered by the dung God. The fly God. That's how you're empowered. This is heartbreaking and jaw-dropping. I mean, just think of the works he has done, and think of the Old Testament scriptures that predict what the Messiah will do. (laughs) And they look at these works, and they look at the people he's freeing, and they look at the people he's raised from the dead, and they conclude, "Oh, he's he's only able to do that because he's working for Satan." I mean, think of the. Think of the blasphemy involved in this. Here is the one who is the Father's own fellow. He is God of God in human flesh. They accuse him of working the devil. Here is the one who who speaks nothing but truth. Who is the Word of God. They call him a liar. Here is the one who came to set people free. to, to, To give sight to the blind. They call him an enslaving demonic force it's It's unthinkable, but that is sadly what people do when they're forced to make a decision. It's only because Jesus works and his teaching were so in their face, so inescapable that they're left with with two choices. or either bow the knee, recognize who He is. but you, you got to explain these miracles somehow. And then Jesus' response to them, I think, will explain the corruption in what they're saying. There's no honest mistake. This is no a legitimate accusation. This is intentional blasphemy and slander. They attributed his power to Satan. That's one group, one response. And others, to test him, kept seeking a sign. And the word for test could also mean to mock or provoke And sadly, I think with this group, and I don't want to say too much of this to spoil Greg's thunder, but you notice what they're not seeking is a Messiah. They're not seeking truth. In other words, Jesus has done some mighty and notable miracles. And at a certain point, rather than viewing those miracles as the credentials for the Messiah, but the real issue is who is he? I think this group just wants to see more of a show. And so they keep seeking. What are they seeking? They're sign seekers. They're seeking signs. They just want more signs. They want more miracles. Turn in your Bible to John chapter 6. I think we see a a good example of this. Sadly, for this group, the question of Jesus' identity is, is I think, not very important. What's important? This guy puts on a good show. This guy does some amazing things. We want to see more. More signs, please. In John chapter 6. Jesus has just fed the 5,000. And then He crosses over the sea at night, walks in the water, and gets to the other side. I want to pick it up in verse 24. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, this is the crowd He had just fed, nor His disciples, they themselves got into boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. That sounds initially good. They're seeking Jesus. When they found Him on the other side of the sea, they said to Him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Fancy meeting you here, Jesus. It's amazing we just bumped into you again. Jesus answered them, now get this, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking Me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Now they did see a sign. I think what Jesus is saying is you didn't get the significance, or pardon upon the significance of the sign. You didn't get what the sign was pointing to. You just saw a magic trick. You just saw a powerful wonder, and your bellies are full, and you wanted more. He says, "Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life." Here, Jesus is pointing to what the sign was pointing to. For on Him, um, for life which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him, the Son of God, this the Father, sorry, has set His seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to do the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe on him whom he has sent. There it is, straightforward answer. Believe believe on me. That's what God's calling you to do. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may believe you? What sign? Now notice where this goes. They give a suggestion of what sign he should give. Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it's written, he gave them bread from heaven. Hint, hint. Hint, that bread thing you did yesterday? And we'd, that'd be pretty good. <laughs> Our stomachs are grumbling. And, you know, Moses didn't just give him bread one day. Moses gave him bread day after day in the wilderness with the manna. So, hint, hint, Jesus, what sign will you do? But that bread thing was pretty cool. <laughs> I mean, just the absolute stunning audacity. What sign will you do? He just did, <laughs> it boggles the mind. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He does not feed them again. And by the end of John 6, many of them will forsake him and go home. There's no more show. There's no more food. He begins to teach them difficult things about eating his flesh, drinking his blood. And this crowd that was so eager to chase him to the other side of the sea for more food, for another sign, when they get denied that, they go home grumbling. So back to Luke 11. These are the two responses. Some attribute his power to Satan. And others to test him for seeking a sign. And we won't say any more about the sign because that's what Jesus responds to directly in verses 29-32. through 32. Jesus is going to deal with both of these accusations, or responses. We're going to spend the rest of our time looking at how he responds to the accusation that he is empowered by Satan. Jesus now refutes his accusers. And he does it in three if statements. you notice them there in the text. Verse 18, If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Verse 19, If I cast out demons by Baal, by who do your sons cast them out? Verse 20, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So he's going to give three conditional if clauses which form his refutation, and it's devastating. Let's. One other thing before we dive in. Notice the grace of our Lord. He's going to refute them. He's going to silence them he's going to shut them down but even that is a grace he's trying to show them this is one more last ditch effort to show them abandon this corrupt way of thinking i mean he could just call down fire from heaven and blast them i mean they just the level of blasphemy they committed in accusing the holy one of god to be empowered by the lord of the dung and yet he he reasons with them he shows them the corruption in their thinking and what's the implication of that repent stop thinking this way recognize just how broken your reasoning is the three three refutations first their accusation is irrational their accusation is irrational now as jesus begins in verse 17 it says he knowing their thoughts said to them now i could be that this is some supernatural knowledge or it could simply be Jesus picking up. They're whispering. They're, they're not saying this to Him. They're, they're saying to one another. And I don't think they know that He gets this yet. Because when He begins, He begins with an axiom. Something they'd all agree to. Nothing controversial. And He says this, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid to waste. And a divided household falls. And that's supposed to be axiomatic. self Evident. No need to sell that. That's obvious. Of course, civil wars weaken kingdoms. Of course, houses divided are not strong. Of course. They're not surprised. I don't think they see where he's going until the first if comes out. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will this kingdom stand? For you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And they go from nodding, and of course, to... Uh oh. It's irrational. Satan, here's your blank, is not divided against himself. We know from other Scriptures that Satan and his forces are are united under leadership. That there is orderings and hierarchy. There are plans and schemes. Listen to Ephesians 6.12. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It's not as though Satan's kingdom is in an anarchy. And every demon is just doing his own thing. No, we know from the Scripture that they're ordered. There's a plan. There's a purpose. Paul elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 2.11 says we are not ignorant of Satan's schemes, his plans. There is a logic, a broken logic, but a logic nonetheless to Satan's plans. And his kingdom is not a kingdom of anarchy. And they know that. And so Jesus is saying, look, how on earth does what you're saying even make any sense? I mean, maybe you could use that excuse for one exorcism. Maybe you could explain Satan's trying to trick us. Because after all, in Deuteronomy, he speaks about prophets who may be able to work a wonder, and, but if they don't speak according to what God's Word says, it's being done to trick them, to test them. But Jesus has just a wake behind him of, of exorcised demons. Thousands and people who are still in the right mind, one of them is out preaching the Gospel to the Decapolis. How on earth could that be Satan's strategy? It doesn't make any sense. And this is the type of place you have to go to when you're cornered, when you're confronted with the living Christ. When, when there is no other way to, to put Him aside. It's, it's irrational. But second, it's not just irrational, it's hypocritical. It's hypocritical. He says to them, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. Now, presumably, we don't have much information on this, but presumably um, in Israel and, and, and under Judaism and under the Pharisees and the ministries and the temple and, and the synagogues, there is some itinerant form of, of Jewish exorcism. In fact, turning your Bibles to Acts Chapter 19, Luke does actually give us one example of this in Acts 19. It's the only one I'm aware of in the Bible, so it's worth going to. And so the the, the logic is this approved by the Pharisees, temple approved, synagogue endorsed, exorcisms or attempts at exorcism, ministry to demon possessed people was undergoing. And, And the Pharisees and the people and the crowds thought this was good. They thought it was the work of God. They blessed it. They, they recognized in it God at work. And Jesus' argument, point is point one as you turn to Acts 19, is that Jesus' power is just incredibly greater than theirs. Well, you'll see just how weak and impotent the Jewish exorcists are here in Acts 19. Verse 13. Some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, quote, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirits answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize. Who are you? The man with whom the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Now you can read your New Testament through and through, nothing like that ever happened to Jesus or the apostles. Ever. And yet, and the logic of Jesus' argument is men like these, as ineffectual as they were, We're endorsed, recognized as doing God's work. So the logic is, okay, you've got people doing this to a much lesser degree. And you're seeing in that the work of God, the power of God. And then I come along, and my disciples come along, and we do such a greater work, such a a more consistent work. None of my disciples are are getting beaten by demoniacs. And you can then say, no, no, he's doing it by Satan. Satan. It's absolute hypocrisy. I mean, by that logic, Satan's kingdom is far more powerful than God's kingdom. The people working in God's power can do these feeble works, but Satan can do the powerful. No, it's it's hypocritical. Absolutely hypocritical. Therefore, point two: they are self-condemned. They are self-condemned. That's that's the logic of therefore they will rise up and be your judges. The day of judgment, when you rejected Jesus' works, it's almost like on the video screen will be them saying and looking at these itinerant exorcists, well, oh, the Lord's really working through them. They're doing the work of the Lord. Well, they wouldn't say Lord. would the, the, They're they doing the work of the name. That's oftentimes how they'll refer to the Lord. Um, and that will be their condemnation. They're self-condemned. It's, it's, it's irrational. It's hypocritical. This is the final point, I think the culmination here in verse 20. Their accusation, though, ultimately is deceitful. Their accusation is deceitful. This is the strongest rebuke I think Jesus makes. Final if. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast down demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, what do we make of this phrase? The finger of God. There's an Old Testament antecedent. Please Turn your Bibles back to Exodus chapter 8. Exodus chapter 8. Now, I know th- some of you may be thinking that God with his own finger wrote the Ten Commandments. That is true. And a disembodied hand showed up and wrote on the wall of Balthasar's um, castle his, his drunken feast, meeny, meeny, ticular, farson. But I believe the reference to the finger of God is Exodus chapter 8, where Moses. Is attempting to establish God's authority and his identity as God's spokesman and prophet. That's the similar context. Moses has come to Pharaoh with a message let my people go. And God validates that message by giving Moses the ability to perform signs and miracles. And initially, Pharaoh's sorcerers try to keep step with him, don't they? Not at the same scale. He turns the Nile into blood, they can make a bucket. Turn into blood or something, but they finally get to one they can't match, and so in Exodus chapter eight we'll pick it up in um, verse sixteen. The Lord said to Moses, "Say to Aaron, stretch out your staff, strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt." And they did so. And Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened. What are they saying? What they're saying is this. Pharaoh, what these men are doing can only be explained as the power of God. Now, they, they're, they're doing works through their own sorceries, their rites, their magic, whatever you want to make of that. And what they're saying is this isn't a whole different league, Pharaoh. Which is to say, this is undeniable. That's the point. That Moses' miracles with him and Aaron were of such a great scale, there, there was no denying it. There was no refuting it. And here's Jesus' point. Even pagan sorcerers who were unrepentant were able to recognize the power of God when they see it, but these people refused to. Even pagan sorcerers recognized God's power when they saw it. And Jesus has done greater miracles than Moses did, has He not? Raising two people from the dead. Feeding 5,000 commanding legions of demons, calming storms, rebuking disease. He's the greater Moses. We saw that, didn't we? When His Father says, listen to Him, it's the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18. I'll raise up for you a prophet like you among your midst, among your brothers, and it's to Him they must listen. This is the greater Moses. Pagan sorcerers could recognize God's power. These people would not. See, it's not that they missed it. It's not that they legitimately were confused. What Jesus is saying is, I have done undeniable power and works. You know perfectly well what this is. Anyone who's seen what I've done recognizes what this is. It's deceitful. It's not honest. You see what they're doing? And turn one more time to to Romans chapter one. They're doing is they're suppressing the truth. You see, Romans 1, the Apostle Paul makes it clear that the reason why people reject Christ, reject God, reject His Word, is not because of honest misunderstandings. It is not because they failed to see enough evidence. Rather, it is a willful, intentional rejection of truth. Now, everyone knows Romans chapter 1, verse 16, where Paul sets out his thesis, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Gospel reveals God's righteousness, but then in verse 18, before he ever gets to gospel, he'll pick gospel back up in chapter 3. Middle of chapter 3. He's got a different revelation of God to explain the wrath of God is revealed. And so from 118 through 3.20, Paul is going to explain why God is angry. And I want you to see what heads the list. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. is God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. Why is God mad at humanity? Now, at the end of chapter 1, you'll get the laundry list of all those horizontal sins that we recognize as evil. First and foremost, why is God angry at humanity? Because we see the evidence of God all around us. And we trade the truth of God for a lie because we don't want to worship Him. We don't want to be thankful. We don't want to have to order our lives around Him. We get the implications. These people get the implications. If Jesus is the Messiah, if He is the greater Moses, then as Deuteronomy says, we need to listen to Him. But well, we've also got Jesus teaching through here, haven't we? And his calls to love your enemy, his calls to, to to hear and obey, to bear fruit. His calls to repentance, to self-denial, picking up your cross, following him. They didn't want to do that. And yet, here he is working these wonders, working these powers. And we don't want to bend the knee, and we don't want to repent, and we don't want to obey, and we certainly don't want to pick up crosses and follow them. That does not sound like fun. So what are we going to do? I know. We'll say he's doing it through satanic power. That, that's what they're doing. It's, it's intentional. When he references the finger of God, that's what he's saying. This is undeniable, self-evident, you have no excuse for not recognizing it, power that I've been working Back in chapter 9, Luke established who Jesus is. Now in the narrative, Jesus is saying, I've established who I am. In fact, I'll borrow one more thing from Greg. You look a little later and go back to Luke chapter 11. Jesus is done doing signs. Verse 29, when the crowds were increasing, He began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. You're going to get one sign and in two weeks. You'll find out what that is. But he's done doing miracles on demand. He's done laying out his credentials. He's done it sufficiently. And now it's decision time. Now it's decision time. And notice the final thing he says. Since I've done these unmistakable, powerful works, the finger of God, then there's something else that comes with that too. The kingdom of God has come upon them. God's king is present in the flesh, leading his people as his kingdom advances. And the kingdom of the enemy, the kingdom of darkness, because there's two kingdoms in this passage, right? The kingdom of Satan or of God, as Jesus asks, how can his kingdom stand if he's divided? Well, there's another kingdom that closes this passage, God's kingdom. And God's kingdom is, is moving on into enemy territory, isn't it? As He's, as he's just freeing people oppressed by demons. As he's, as he's freeing them from that tyrannical rule. As people are bending the knee and, and becoming citizens of God's kingdom. And so there's this face-to-face showdown here. The irony, of course, being these people accusing Him of being satanic are in fact being satanic. And inspired by the devil. Jesus unpacks that in John chapter 8. He's got more to say about this. And we'll look at that next week. But I I just want to draw to a close here by reminding you that that same point of decision comes for all of us. I know that many of us have bowed the knee to Christ. Many of us have turned to Him and trusted Him and, and entrusted ourselves to Him. But I'd be foolish to think that there aren't some who are still thinking they're making their minds up. And God, God gives evidence. He's not calling for blind faith. In every instance, God verifies his message. But also understand there comes a point where God says, You've seen enough. Make or break time, final exam. And understand you can't sit on the fence forever. You will resolve into either submitting to the Lordship of Christ or beginning to vilify him. Note what Jesus says down in verse 23. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. We live in a postmodern age where there's all these perspectives and there's all this gray area. You can cut humanity down into two groups. Those who are with Jesus, those who are against Him. There is no third category. No third category. So, so if you're here today and you are not with Jesus, and by with Jesus, Jesus gives a pretty good litmus test for what that means, because there's a woman who cries on a blessing to him. Blessed is the womb that bore you. And the breast which you nursed, and he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. What does it mean to be with Jesus? It means to hear the word of God and keep it, to hear his word and keep it. If that's not you, you're against Jesus. And he's against you. That those, those are the two groups. You cut it down that simply. You can just cut to the chase. Simplify it. Whoever's not with me is against me. Whoever's not gather with me scatters. And so I just, I, I pray, my as my prayers we close, that if there's anyone who has not come to some conclusion who Jesus is, that you would recognize that God in His Word, God by His Spirit, God through His people testifies to His Word. You can talk to people who can testify The power, the Gospel, God's faithfulness, His Word testifies to it. And understand, you'll you'll either bow the knee to Christ or end up like these people who are seeking signs or slandering Him. But there is no safe middle ground. There is no safe middle ground. And Jesus here, even in the face of this horrible blasphemy, is still mercifully trying to show them Show them their irrationality. Show them their hypocrisy. Show them their dishonesty in an attempt that they might change, that they might come and have faith in Him, that they might come to hear God's Word and keep it too. That would be my prayer for for everyone here. If anyone's on the fence, you'd get off the fence and you'd bow the knee to Christ. Not be against Him. We'll we'll pick this up next week and and deal with the, the strong man and the stronger man the return of the unclean spirit. Let's close in a word of prayer. Lord God, we just, uh, we thank you for so clearly testifying to who your son is. You've not left it a mystery. You, you have testified through signs and wonders. You have testified through eyewitness accounts. You have testified through, through your redeemed people going throughout the world proclaiming the glories of your kingdom. Oh, Lord God, let us recognize that. Let us not be guilty of this slander this unbelief, or this, just show me a little more. we recognize that all such responses put us against you. And Lord in Christ, you have shown that you are for us. So Lord God, just pray that you would open our eyes to see, give us ears to hear, that we would be for and with Christ, that we would hear his word, that we would keep his word, that we would have no doubts, but great confidence in who jesus is our god our savior messiah in jesus name amen